This is a podcast about time. The time it takes to become an artisan. Heritage. Saving to buy something you'll keep forever. Sustainability. Memories attached to clothing that you've loved and lived in. And the longevity of friendship. To us, the true definition of luxury. I'm Lynn Coleman. Join me and my friend and colleague, Jill Brown, as we chat about the components about what makes Scottish cashmere so special, why it's loved by people all around the globe, and why every design house has a Scottish mill in their little black book. Lochanan of Scotland, Weaving Credentials, John Paul Gauthier, Paul Smith, Calvin Klein, and Comme de Garçon. If you ever find yourself in Selkirk, for a reason untextile related, you'd be forgiven for thinking it was a sleepy wee town in the borders where the pace of life hovers above a slither. However, looks can be very deceiving. Within this quiet, quaint, evergreen town is an efficient industry that delivers domestically and internationally. Selkirk is home to Lochanan of Scotland, the world's leading manufacturer of tartan. The mill was established by John Buchan in 1947, but their lineage goes much deeper than that. Buchan embodied the entrepreneurial spirit many of his textiles predecessors possessed before him. Shortly after establishing Lochadon, Buchan bought over another mill established in 1892, marrying the two companies together in unrivaled heritage and expertise. Made in Scotland is still a proud ethos upheld at Lochadon by skilled craftsmen and women who design, dye, warp, weave, mend, tailor and tease tartans into textiles. A truly global brand with timeless appeal, Lochadon offers a unique authenticity and showcases the very best in Scottish textiles. From kilts to catwalk, the mill has championed traditional tartan fabric manufacturing whilst continuing to innovate and design bespoke creations for major international fashion houses. One of those special relationships comes from the Far East, a business partnership that Don Robson Bell, the then Design and Sales Director and now Managing Director, thrives on. Having been at the helm for over 25 years, all the while collaborating with iconic British high street institutions and top European couture houses, it is this Japanese market that holds a special slot in her heart. Comme de Garçon have used Lochanan of Scotland to create their textiles for as long as Robson Bell has been there. That kind of loyalty and longevity in fashion is rare and a completely unique thing. Manufacturing for other fashion lines is part and parcel of daily life at Lochadon, but it's only one half of their story. The mill's own range proves really popular with its adoring public, and let's be honest, if it's good enough for royalty, then it's good enough for the rest of us. The Lochadon of Scotland accessory collection of scarfs, ties, throws and stools perfectly combines classic tartans with super soft cashmeres, lamb's wool and lightweight merinos. Iconic pieces are accompanied by a new range of contemporary accessories, which launched in the spring of 2016, which included bags and small leather goods, all featuring 100% wool fabrics woven in Scotland and complemented by a sophisticated seasonal colour palette. Lochadon do scale incredibly well, catering to the needs of big business and individual customers on top of providing product to the high street and high-end labels. They understand how heritage manufacturing and marketing cohabit in a modern world. It's so funny because the, the nearest town to my cottage is Selkirk. And I, I knew bits 
Um, but my sort of big introduction to textiles, I used to work for ITV in the borders and I made lots of films. And the first film I made was about the textile industry. Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't know. No. If you, if you, you know, you have to go on the outskirts of the town, you can see the older mills, but you, you just wouldn't know that it's, the, you know, from Selkirk to Japan. Like, it's just ah. incredible. It's, incredible. Well, where um, Lockhart and DC Dalgleish are, are on that old mill road. So there's, um, it, it's it, the road that takes you in or out of Selkirk, and it's um, there's an industrial park that kind of skirts around the the old road, if you like, and so you would completely miss it. And actually, having driven up and down that road over the best part of five years, I frequently forget which turn off to go into for Lockaren or DC Dalgleish. I do it a lot, but yeah, you're right. There, there is this sleepy lovely rural town heartbeat that you get it's very it's, you know it's a, it's a really chilled out place it's in the middle of the country but yet we are producing for global brands and the, the fabric gets shipped everywhere it's just it it's a very 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 special place and Lockaren of Scotland um are one of a handful of places that have a cafe and offer mill tours. And that's really, really special. And if you ever come to Scotland, you should absolutely do it because it kind of steals a little bit of your heart when you see the machines clacking away and that that it's so loud. When you see it and hear it in the flesh, it really makes you appreciate how much effort and time and expertise has gone into the whole process. And I get extra excited because it's about tartan too, you know, so that you you weave, you can weave any fabric into whatever you want, but when you're weaving amazing materials into tartan, I get even more excited. And it's that sort of legacy that Selkirk has, doesn't it? You know, that's not something that's come from nowhere. In fact, it's, it's probably its most famous in the world of fashion and textiles son is Bernard Klein but if you don't like it's amazing that not more is known of, of him because yes. he was this absolute godfather of luxury Juggle. isn't he yeah he Bernard Klein is for for anybody that doesn't know and and forgive us if we're teaching you to suck eggs you're like I don't exactly who Bernard Klein is thank you very much he in the 70s that was his heyday, 70s and 80s. Basically was designing for Balenciaga, for Chanel, for for every French fashion house and then some. And he came, you know, he wasn't Scottish, but he became an honorary Scot, as many people do. You know, they come here and fall in love with, the, with our way of life and our materials and all that kind of stuff. And he set up home here and had his family here and built probably one of the most exciting houses that Scotland has ever seen in the borders. And then he built um, the thing that steals my heart on a, a weekly basis when I go down, which is a studio. And the studio was modelled on um, the Waterfall House by Frank... Lloyd Wright. Frank Lloyd Wright. Thank you very much. You read my mind. Um, and so that's that's what it looks like. If anybody if anybody doesn't know the house that I'm talking about, you'll have absolutely seen its picture. It's really really famous. It's in America. Um, it's a house that is kind of brutalist in form, uh, glass with big kind of concrete blocks that that cater around the giant glass 
windows and then there's a waterfall that literally goes through the inside of the property and and Bernard Klein managed to do that in Selkirk and there is I, I don't know whether or not you've been to the to, to I've seen that just from the edge of the road because when I did the piece on Barnett Klein I wanted to get some shots of it but at that point there was a big gate you couldn't get in oh, okay. so but I have seen the outside well there, there is a there is a river that runs through it so hmm. they, they've managed to do the whole thing and it's been derelict for decades and it's you know it's it, it's protected but it's fallen apart and it just it breaks my heart that it sits there doing nothing and, and but you know and his daughter's just written a brilliant book, hasn't she? she? Has. It's called is it Growing Up in the See-Through House or Growing Up in a Glass House? Yeah. And about her experiences in a house that's completely made of glass, but also being his daughter. Yeah, and and what the what he did and what was very deliberate in his designs was he used the Scottish borders and the countryside seasonally as his colour palette. So that was something that he was that he would talk about and teach people that when you are doing tweets, particularly he excelled in tweets. When you're doing tweets in the home of Tweed Valley, um, you should use the color palettes that are available to you, from the grass to the trees to the bark to the soil to the rivers, the sky, um, and, and Scotland is at times particularly um, when. We are close to solstice. Either either end, we get you know everybody gets the golden hour, the hour before the sun comes up, and the hour or the fifteen minutes uh, before the sun comes up, and the fifteen minutes before the sun goes down. So there's this like iridescent glow, but when it's in the borders or anywhere in Scotland actually, but in the borders particularly because this is where he was and this is what he was championing. Championing, there is this iridescence that comes off of everything. Because everything's soaked in water all the time, you know, it's raining and there's rivers and it's so it dewy. sparkles. It's literally it's iridescent. And he wanted to be able to create that in textiles. And he managed, he totally, he totally did it. But again, this goes back to what you were saying about his daughter. He wanted to be able to look out at all times so that he could just have the assault of colour changing every day. And anybody that's ever been to Scotland, our, you know, that that old saying, four seasons in one day, is really, really true here. You can experience it in, actually in 30 minutes, doesn't need to be one day. But because of that, the light quality at any given time can change so drastically. It can be really sharp and oversaturate everything and blind you to being really, really dull. And the greys, I've never seen so many greys, you know, but actually what happens in that is that it... it highlights green in a certain way or it highlights the orange from the trees and you saw that in his tweet work and I I still to this day have never been able to 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 see anybody create the way that he did because of the mechanics that he taught himself his tweet work and the artwork that went along with the the material is just second to none and that's why Balenciaga and Chanel and everybody flocked to him and you know his genius was taught. He liked to pass that stuff on. That was the whole point. But yeah, what an eye! What an exciting. And he played he with had. it, didn't he? Because yeah. that was—I mean, I have been the absolute had the good fortune to see some of his archive. Harriet Watt have one of their campuses in Gala Shields. It's where they moved their textiles school and their fashion school. And it, again, it kind of blows my mind that it's in this little corner of Gala Shields. And so I went and I filmed there and the, the, and the head archivist showed us, you know, he, he managed to sort of get a, 
like a spot in his his tweed and he did that by dip dyeing and everyone thought he was mad until they saw the finished product and they were like how have you managed to get this sort of speckle the speckle through but the single most amazing thing that I saw you just talked about Balenciaga was a velvet tweed he did for Balenciaga I just shivered how how silly I I can't even begin to imagine articulate Jill articulate the cost of what that would have been to have something made of that but it was it's it's all different types of browns which you can totally see comes from the natural world all interwoven and so it's it's it then looks less like a um, tweed and more like a quilt Mm -hmm. you know because it's quite thick ribbon it's thick velvet ribbon and you're just how have you even begun to imagine that and understand that and then think about that in a garment yeah. and and you know it's it, it, a tiny swatch of it I saw maybe like an A4 piece and uh, I got to put gloves on and touch it and of course the thing is you don't get the full feeling yeah. through the glove but you also can't touch it because there's only this much of it left yes. and it's kept in the world's most secure room but it's this absolute piece of genius and you're just like I can't can you imagine what that would have been like to wear? And, you know, how lovely. We, we must, I wonder if someone can get in touch, if they've got something or they know someone who's got a jacket or a... A, a Bernard Klein. But you would, you would never know no. unless actually you could date your piece. So, yeah, if there's a Balenciaga archive out there, particularly the Swedes and the Velvets. So, yeah, if you're a, a lucky individual, please, please let us see it. It would be really, really nice. But, no, he's he is someone that continues to steal my heart. Um... And his work lives on, particularly down in the borders, and is is being taught. And he's 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 become a massive champion now. Um, now that we're really, you know, people are really starting to talk about him in wider circles because of his genius, you know. But the one thing that I again was blown away by is his color wheel. So he. Quite late in his life, um, well, they think quite late in his life because obviously when you're archiving, once someone passes away, you're not quite sure when they did start this concept. It could have came to him when he was in his 20s and he just didn't start doing it until much later in life, you don't know. But he had started to do on like sort of canvas blocks of acrylic paint that is just kind of layered on top of each other and in a kind of almost abstract kind of way. But what it then achieves is the layering of what it would look like if you did that with fabrics and for anybody that's ever tried to do a drawing of fabric it really falls flat and it doesn't it doesn't always translate and this is something that you know I have I have done over my years and you know I've sat with some of the best designers in the whole entire world but the spec drawings can sometimes just don't don't work in in ways until you've woven it and that can be an expensive process from what you are trying to mimic in pencil and pen to the end product that comes off of the finishing line. And that's expensive to do, obviously. But if you don't get it right, you have to do it again. You have to go back to the drawing board. And what you see in the colour wheel, which is it's just hundreds of, of swatches, swatches of paintings, essentially, is exactly that. That was his starting point, that he just kept layering these pieces of acrylic on top of each other and kind of flecking them up so that almost it definitely looks tweedy but can look tartany in some aspects too and I just it's a process that I started developing after 
I saw him do it because it makes it much easier to wrap your head around designing fabric. So thank you, Bernard. And, you know, we've talked a lot throughout the podcast about incredible women in luxury, you know, so much so that we're both, we need to talk more about incredible women in luxury, but here to have a female MD in charge of a textile business. How exciting. Uh, Yeah, Dawn is someone who I have a giant woman crush on. She is not only at the helm of one of the most well-loved mills in the world, but she is so giving of her time. She is so giving of her expertise. She, uh, you know, she, she will help you if she can. And for someone that's running a, a giant business, that's pretty incredible. And we, we, we sat down and you know, I've interviewed her a few times for, for columns and, and for the book. And that's where the Comme de Carson's story came from. Um, she likes to talk about that relationship. And the reason that actually that that is so lovely too, I, I, which I touched on in that sentence, is that in a, in a world where we've seen fast and furious changing of guards, you know, uh, creative directors coming and going and, you know, people setting up companies and them folding. And in the quietness of all of that, Locarin and Comte de Garçon's relationship has lasted over 25 years. Some managers don't even get to that milestone, you know, and and here's this business relationship that straddles the earth and is bound by tartan. And I just think it's so romantic and poetic and beautiful and their culture and our culture are entwined in this material and at the heart of that it's human beings it's human beings having the relationship and connection and going back to everything that we're talking about that's luxury to me to be able to nurture and grow and push boundaries and you know the stuff that they are making with Comme de Garçon just gets more and more exciting and more and more cool and uh, they do stuff with Vivian Westwood and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's, this, it's this established relationship that that's why people go back, you know, and Dawn is absolutely integral to that. Just... Well, she must be doing something right. You know, it's, it's an old business that is not reinventing itself, but just working with these amazing brands to, to keep going. And, you know, we, we talked about Barry and all that expertise in Barry, but Barry going to the wall and having to be rescued by yeah. Chanel Whereas she's, that's not happening there. They, they, they have all that expertise, but they're also keeping the business going. And that, that can be difficult to sort of move with the times, I suppose. Yeah, and that also is um, a great testament to having the, you know, we were talking about Johnson's and having the full linear mill. Something that we've not touched upon a lot is that these mills have business development and marketing teams and and. We forget that a product can be amazing, but if you've nobody to be able to take that product to market, and we were talking about DC Dalglish, it was it was you know the um, DC Dalglish's wife that went out and did that, and she went she physically went out and sold it. She was so passionate about it. Again, another woman in luxury makes me happy. Um, but that that's the point, isn't it? That we forget sometimes that you know if you want to start a band and you want to have number one hits and sell millions of albums, you can't stay in the garage all your life. You know, you have to have people hear your product. 
and you have to have people champion your product. And that starts at home. That starts inside your business. You know, you can't just expect to create relationships with people when you haven't been putting your money where your mouth is to sell. And they really do that. They, you know, they take care of their whole team. And I think that's that's a key part, isn't it? Is and that's a bit that I think a lot, and you'll know better than me. That's a lot of things that businesses struggle with. Is and what you know, having what we talked about last episode around um, spreading your business too far, you know, and and going from you know Mark Jacobs with his two hundred and fifty stores, you can go too far. But it's it's that balance, and they've they've clearly got that. They've clearly managed to to walk that line where they've not diluted their luxury, they've not diluted their brand. And and I suppose at the heart of that is is really good relationships. Mm -hmm. Really good relationships and quality. And not buckling under uh, under pressure of trends. Now, when we've been defining the word luxury, it will be you and I have been talking about time and expertise. And that is fitted into the finished product. And that's experience and love and knowing that, that then the end consumer is going to take care of that product the way that you have taken care of it from conception to the shop floor. And not bowing to the pressures of an industry. And yeah, we were talking about this in the last um, podcast about the economics of fashion. Then throwing you away somewhere else, taking you off course, you know, getting you getting excited about the shiny bobble of a fashion week or, oh, but we could be on the cover of Vogue, so let's run after that. And actually, you just have to buckle down into where you excel because it's where you excel that you become different. That's the point, right? Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's that, you know, how you protect that as well. As, you know, if you think about, I always think the, the Burberry stories are really interesting one where they actually took that that print away because it was being stolen and copied. And, you know, you know how Harris Tweed have had to fight to protect yeah. their brand. And that is, the, I think, the Britain's oldest registered trademark. But, you know, they've, they've clearly protected that at the same time. And how you, know, how you do that, how you keep one hand over your homework plus also marketing what you do and it's hard it's challenging design, design can't really be ip'd it can't be protected it's not like a, you can stick a patent on something like that because design can be tweaked into tiny amounts and you know that's the same with tartan tartan is the, the best example of that that you know you can produce things that nobody you, someone can own it someone can own the copyright to it but you would have to go after somebody that did a tiny tweak, a, you know, a, a differing of a shade in a red or, you know, taking the camel from, uh, from the Thompson uh, tartan, which is synonymous with Burberry. But that's the point. That's a Thompson tartan. You've just called it the Burberry tartan, but it's not. You know, it's actually, it, it belongs to a very different process. They themselves just latched onto that for a particular reason. But yeah, you can you can dial up a hue or dial down a hue, still looks the same, and it can be hijacked and taken on a different movement. And actually, that's exciting in fashion. That's what keeps things moving and and, and vibrant. But it can also be your nail in the coffin, you know, if, if it gets hijacked for a different um, purpose. And uh, when we come into the, the, the later podcast, we're, we're talking about the jumpers, the Argyle 
that absolutely happened to the Argyle jumper. So that you know, that's a classic diamond motif that you in the eighties would see on golfers. Um, and then it kind of got a, a Begbie makeover in train spotting. <laughs> and then, but, but way before that, it was on starlets in 1940s and 1950s old Hollywood glamour movies. And so that this life cycle of design, it, it always happens. I've talked about this in a previous um, podcast too, that Lever's timeline of when something is in and out of fashion it all stems on what is happening culturally and economically. And that is the fun thing of being able to look back on pictures of yourself and haircuts and glasses size and, you know, on your face and what you're wearing. But that's exactly it. You can tweak something and it can be hijacked in a different way. And But that's design though, isn't it? And that's the point that it should be free to be able to breathe. Well, that's it, isn't it? It's, it's where's where's the line between inspiration and influence and copying? You, you can't like where you, it's so difficult to find that line. So so difficult. Next up, we are going to be delving into an oldie but a goodie. It's Pringle of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> 